Hey, this is Kate Nocera, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. Every week, we talk about the insanity that is U.S. politics, break down a few stories, and try and make sense of things. Charlie, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, we've got uh, a lot to talk about today. Uh, Wednesday evening, Montana GOP House candidate Greg Gianforte allegedly body slammed a reporter from The Guardian, and our reporter Alexis Levinson was a partial witness, uh, so she's going to join us to tell us about that. Then, uh, how a conspiracy theory about a murdered DNC staffer has gotten worse and worse and worse and now involves somebody from cable news. Uh, And finally, we're going to talk about President Trump's trip to Saudi Arabia and Israel. So it is a packed show today. Lastly, it is 1130 a.m. on a Thursday. And I'm telling you that because by the time you listen to this, who knows what will have happened. So the Montana special election is taking place on Thursday night, but the night before, on Wednesday, something really crazy happened. And joining us from Bozeman, Montana, is Alexis Levinson, a BuzzFeed news reporter who was there and is going to tell us all about it. Alexis, could you tell us about what you saw and what happened? So this was billed as a campaign meet and greet. For Greg John Forte, it was at his headquarters, his campaign headquarters in Bozeman. He's the Republican candidate um, running in this Montana special election. And it was going to be his last event before Election Day. I was there with um, Ben Jacobs, who's a reporter at The Guardian. And we were both trying to get time with the candidate. And anyways, it was a lot of like milling around. But what ended up happening was there was a news crew that we later learned was Fox News. Um in a kind of side room off this campaign office that was set up for an interview. Uh, John Forte went in there, Ben went in, you know, left the door wide open, or not wide open, but half open. Uh, ben went in there to listen in to what was being said. And I wasn't really paying attention. I was standing in the other room. And then all of a sudden there was this huge crash, like just really loud. <laughs> um, and then in a sort of, I looked over and I sort of saw feet fly up in the air in the way that, feet fly when someone is going the wrong direction. Um, Wow. And then there was very loud, angry yelling um, that sounded like John Forte saying, get the hell out of here, yelling at Ben. Well, we can can listen to the audio. And And we'll talk to you about that later. Yeah, but there's not going to be time. I'm just curious if you have to Speak with Shane, please. But you don't. Sick and tired of you guys. The last guy that came here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. Jesus. Get the hell out of here! The last guy did the same thing. You were the guardian? Yes, and you just broke my glasses. You, the last guy did the same damn thing. You just body slammed me and broke my glasses. Yeah, Ben walked out holding his glasses, which were visibly broken. A campaign aide came out and said, Ben, you need to leave. He left. Um, he went outside. He called the cops. And what unfolded, it ended up with John Forte being charged with misdemeanor, or not I don't know if there's a difference between charged and cited, but cited for misdemeanor assault. Um, there was, you know, the, the sheriff's department interviewed everyone who was there. Um, and yeah, day before the election, the candidate is cited for misdemeanor assault against a reporter. It was quite quite the campaign event. Yeah, you've been covering campaigns for like a pretty long time at this point. I mean, have you ever... Have you ever seen Never. anything this, I mean, like this? I can't explain how abnormal just the, the raising of his voice to that level was. 
there were three reporters, I guess, or three outlets with reporters there. And he yelled audibly and everyone in the room could hear it and just sort of stood there awkwardly like, what do we do? What's going on? What was the sort of immediate um, aftermath? Like, I know he he left pretty quickly. And there's, you know, that there's the photo that was in a lot of the papers and online of him in the car and kind of sped off. But did, did the event just basically die out right from there and everyone left or? So the event never actually happened. Ben left. John Forte went into a room with an aide. Um, you know, there was a lot of like going back and forth behind rooms with closed doors. And then he disappeared for a while. And the next time I saw him, I was standing outside and I looked at the car parked in front and he was in the passenger seat and he drove off. They didn't say anything. There, there was just there was no campaign event. Apparently, um, Blake Montgomery, who's also with BuzzFeed, who was out here, said he was standing outside when there were people who were arriving late because this was billed as an event that went from five to seven. And so there are people who apparently showed up at like six, totally at missing this whole incident. And we're just like, wait, we're confused. Like, why Why is this event over? It was supposed to be two hours. And the event just never happened. I mean, he, he never gave remarks. I, it sounds like he didn't give an interview. Like, I was supposed to get time with him there. I didn't get it. Just nothing happened other than something really insane happening. Other than body slamming. <laughs> wow. the, I mean, the, this race has been pretty pretty crazy it's the it's closed a lot the polling has closed a lot in the last uh couple weeks pretty hotly contested obviously the democrats want to pick up here but uh i guess my question is like is this going to matter at all or was it too close to the election that mattered i mean all three montana newspapers that had endorsed uh the republican candidate withdrew their endorsement which is not insignificant but uh does it is it going to move any votes, I guess? I have no idea. There is early voting in Montana. So that's certain, you know, there are certainly a lot of people who have already voted without this information. I had someone email me and say maybe independent voters are turned off by this. And that certainly seems like a reasonable assumption. But I, I have no idea. I think most people that I was talking to thought that John Forte was probably going to win. So we'll, we'll see if that dramatically changes now. So again, we are taping this on Thursday morning. Uh, so by the time you are listening to this, we should know the outcome to the election. So conceivably, by the time you all are listening to this, we'll 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 know who won. But Ben uh, Jacobs was just asking about um, the CBO score of the healthcare bill, which just landed yesterday, and Gianforte had been. Uh, not really talking about his position on that bill because he said he wanted to see the score. So when the score came out, Ben went to try and get an answer from them on this particular question. And I mean, he wasn't doing anything really that any other reporter wouldn't do. I mean, campaigns are really stressful. Things get crazy. But I'm not sure that I recall a a lot of physical violence in campaigns before. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is not, like, this is just not what happens. But, I mean, really just, like, even when you're on the campaign trail as a reporter, you're like, oh, this is why why these people get elected to Congress, because they're very charming and they're very, you know, charismatic and affable and very friendly to people. And then usually it's the aides coming in and saying, yeah, sorry, we actually hate your publication, and no, we're not going to give you an interview. It's very rarely the candidate themselves actually personally kind of getting in someone's face about something. It's it's very normal in 
um, especially covering congressional campaigns when they don't do necessarily like a sit down interview with everyone. It's pretty common to kind of gather around when a news outlet is like has a camera on them and point your recorders at it. Um, we actually we were all doing that in an event on Tuesday afternoon. We were in Great Falls and local news person was interviewing him on camera and all the other reporters there kind of we all stuck our mics in and listened in to what was going on. Um, so it's it's not like it's a weird thing for Ben to have walked into that room to listen to the interview. And it's, it's certainly not a weird thing to ask a candidate for Congress about a CBO score on a congressional bill. This is what we do. Like you <laughs> and I mean, you've seen the photos that's just congressmen surrounded by like 15 reporters with camera, you know, recorders at every angle, like right in their face. And that that's just how the job is. Immediately in the aftermath of this, uh, the campaign, Gianforte's campaign, put out a statement basically saying that Ben was very aggressive, that, you know, this was just another liberal media being super aggressive with a candidate. Uh, Alexis, what was your uh, reaction to that statement? And does it jibe with anything that we know or understand? I mean, I, I think the first-hand account from the Fox News team that was in there, it's just it makes that statement sound completely false. They were trying to write it off, as you said, as liberal media. You can't really do that with the Fox News crew. Like, that's not, that's not how that goes. And, I, yeah, I mean, what they said was even worse than the way Ben described it. And they with were the standing Fox- right there. Like, they were the other people in the room. Yeah, the Fox News account, uh, the the people who were in the room, they 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 wrote a piece that said uh, Gianforte grabbed Ben by the neck, threw him to the ground, and started punching him, uh, which was different than it was. Ben Ben sort of downplayed his version of events, or perhaps he was just in shock, where he said, "You know, I was body slammed," and um, it was it was kind of crazy to see what the actual eyewitnesses were saying went down. Anyway, Alexis, I know that you are exhausted and have a whole day of work and reporting to do, and we'll see what happens. So thank you for joining us. Thanks. All right. So so while we've been talking about this, uh, Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, made a statement about the incident. And let's take a listen to what he said. There is no time where a physical altercation should occur with the press or with just between human beings. So that is wrong and it should not have happened. Um, should the gentleman apologize? Yeah, I think he should apologize. If he wins, will you keep him? If, if he wins, he has been chosen by the Montana, the people of Montana, who their Congress is going to be. I'm going to let the people of Montana decide who they want as their representative. So uh seems like Paul Ryan is anti- physical altercations uh which is good i think that's that's a that's a, a bold, bold stance. stance i'm really uh i'm really glad that there are people out there who are you know uh who are who are looking out for civil society it, like it, that it's one uh, of those things where you know like if the shoe was on the other foot like if it, if this was a democratic candidate that did this to a reporter they would be he needs to step down he has to quit. He needs to apologize. And like, to be fair, uh, a number of Republicans have said that uh, Gianforte should apologize. But, you know, then on then as did, yeah. as did Paul Ryan, he did. And say then out of the apologize. other side of their Just mouth, they're saying, but like if the voters decide to send him to Congress, it's fine with us. <laughs> you know, I, 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 w- 
I will say that the one maybe like saving grace that they have is that this is just so wholly unprecedented that there's no like there's definitely no playbook like you you know he's had what I don't know 14 hours to prepare to talk to reporters and it still sounds like he heard about it 10 yeah. seconds ago like he just seems on his on the you know the back of his heels so I I mean I do if you're being charitable I guess you know it is to say like well, <laughs> this does like this doesn't happen a lot in <laughs> politics. So it did remind me of when um, Michael Grimm, who was a congressman that actually spent some time in jail, not uh, the not too distant past, um, threatened a New York One reporter, like he was going to throw him off oh, the balcony because right. yes. the reporter started asking him about. Um, you know, the charges against him. And he was like, I will break you like a boy. So it's not like there aren't <laughs> there aren't people with tempers or that they haven't dealt with this kind of stuff before. But the, the sort of MO is like, let's wait and see. Joining us now to talk about Seth Rich is Stephen Perlberg, who covers politics and media for BuzzFeed News. Hey, guys. Could you and Charlie, I know Charlie has has thought about this a lot, um, the Seth Rich conspiracy theory. Seth Rich, who tragically was murdered uh, over the summer and worked for the DNC. It's now May. Why has this come up again? Yeah, so there was a story, uh, this kind of got new life in the last few weeks because there was a story uh, in a Fox affiliate um, that involved a private investigator who was working on behalf of the family. Um, This private investigator had said that uh, there was evidence that Seth Rich had communicated with WikiLeaks. Um, That story, which was then picked up by foxnews.com, it quickly broke down and the investigator sort of backtracked on some of the details. But anyway, that that just breathed new life in, into the, this um, thing, which, as, as Charlie knows, has sort of been a meme on the right for the past few months. Um, but then it really heated up uh, in sort of more mainstream conversations because uh, Sean Hannity, the primetime host uh, on Fox News, uh, made this a, a really big push over the past uh, few days. And that kind of came to a head when um, Fox News ended up retracting uh, that article uh, that that Hannity was basing a lot of his commentary on uh, about six days later. And um, this has sort of sparked a, a lot of backlash. And Hannity ended up sort of backing down on it the other night. Um, and, and, and that was really interesting. So it sort of it kind of shows those uh, dual pressures at, at Fox News. Yeah, I, I think one thing that that's really fascinating about this is it's rare that you see both the internet and like mainstream cable news uh, sort of in a mind meld in this in this kind of way. And it was revived by this Fox affiliate in this in this report that was debunked, but it was really sort of like weaponized by uh, people like Mike Cernovich, people like uh, Infowars' Paul Joseph Watson, um, and, and sort of the internet fever swamp on the right. And then, uh, you know, it got big enough that someone like, uh, someone like, you know, Sean Hannity and like in cable news took it on. And then that's sort of how it crossed to the, the really to the mainstream. It's, it's, it's fascinating, but it's also, pretty disturbing i mean the rich family they're dealing with this unsolved murder of their son who was gunned down uh in washington dc last summer 
And they've had to literally like write op-eds like, please stop using our son for political political points. Like, we don't know what happened. We're trying to figure it out. Like, we need the police to just do their job. And now and and the sort of shocking thing to me was how little that mattered. Um, or maybe it did matter. I mean, do you guys think that anything that the family said mattered with Sean Hannity, who kept going for days and days and days about this? Well, I think one of the big questions, at least internally on Fox News, and you have this sort of weird moment where Fox News is kind of trying to combat, or the, the leadership at least is appearing to trying to uh, try to combat sort of like the old culture, like the Roger Ailes era. And so you've got like the Murdoch sons who are, I think, you know, they, they're a different generation. You know, the, the, the fact that the article was even retracted, I think, does speak to a new era at Fox. So then you then Hannity is like one of the last members of this old guard. And so it was really interesting that the other night he he backed down a little bit on the story. And of course, that had people asking, like, to what extent was he reined in? And he told The Huffington Post in an interview that that, you know, he wasn't. So and he tweeted about the Washington Post op-ed from the parents that you mentioned. So maybe it had some some impact, but it's really hard to believe that there wasn't some sort of conversation at Fox about, you know, our news operation has retracted the story. How can we we understand that you're a commentator, Sean, but how can we send out a commentator to talk about this story that like we have our reporters have retracted? So it's a sort of weird weird instance. And yeah, and, and so I, th- I mean, I think that 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 doesn't happen without sort of the the family stepping in, and and I think you know uh, as it played on the far right media uh, on online, these people like Cernovich or. Um, uh, you know, Infowars, th- they were saying that they were kind of crusading on behalf of the family to get them justice. I, I think it's really important to note that uh, that seemed to be pretty disingenuous and and that the whole arc of the one thing we haven't sort of mentioned is that what this Seth Rich story does is sort of exonerates Russia from the DNC hacking narrative. And it's sort of, you know, I mean, that's sort of this this thing that's at the core of it is is sort of trying to prove that Russia had didn't interfere in the election, uh, which is something that seems to be pretty proven. <laughs> so um, I, I think a lot of it is incredibly disingenuous. Can you tell me who Kim.com is? Because I keep seeing his name a lot in this conversation. And I'd never heard of this person before, but I saw Hannity tweeting that this person, you know, knew or had evidence. Who is that and why do they matter? Kim.com is a, I guess you would call him a, like a scoundrel, entrepreneur, internet personality. He created the website Mega Upload, uh, which if you remember back in sort of the more Wild West internet days, is a place where you could download like full torrents of TV shows. Uh, um, He is uh, currently, um, I I believe, wanted for extradition to the United States. Yeah, he's, fight, he's fighting extradition in, currently in New Zealand. 
And so he uh, has sort of is friendly with um, Julian Assange and the WikiLeaks crowd. And Kim.com has been sort of uh, speaking up recently. He was involved early on after Seth Rich's death a little bit, but he's spoken up a lot recently saying he has evidence that Rich was the um, was in contacts with WikiLeaks, uh, but that out of respect for the family, uh, he released a statement this week, out of respect for the family, he uh, isn't going to talk, but he would speak with Robert Mueller and the independent counsel uh, in this whole Trump-Russia situation uh, if he was given safe passage to the United States to testify and then back to New Zealand. So essentially, I think he wants a a free trip with uh, no chance of being jailed for uh, some information which he doesn't seem to want to uh, put forth. Right. And and Hannity had sort of seized on that on Twitter. And then, you know, that sort of unraveled very quickly as well. This is one of these weird situations where it it does feel like the sort of really like crazy far right fever swamps and the crazy far left fever swamps sort of the line is blurry about where they are. I mean, if you recall when this did actually happen last summer, there were a lot of lefties sort of picking up on it that there was some sort of underlying conspiracy theory there as well. But it does feel now now that the story has been revived, it's primarily on the right. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, and I also think it's interesting, and Charlie and I have talked about this before, like, just where the right wing sort of Twitter fever swamp intersect with and, and clash with Fox News, the sort of more mm-hmm. traditional arena for conservative commentary. Um, and this was a was one of those instances where they aligned, and then you know you sort of have pushback from. There were reports in the Daily Beast and CNN about Fox News staffers, and this is something that you know I had sort of heard as well, being pretty embarrassed by um, Hannity covering this so that that's another dynamic that i think is really interesting here great thanks steven see you guys last weekend donald trump was in saudi arabia And he gave a speech that was very highly anticipated where he was going to address the Muslim world uh, from abroad. And joining us now to talk about that is Hannah Alam, who covers Muslim life in America for BuzzFeed News. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Let's just start with the speech itself. And if you could tell me kind of what people were expecting versus what the reality was after he gave his speech. Sure. I think that it would be hard to overstate how low expectations were for this uh, for this speech. I mean, as soon as it was announced, there was kind of this collective cringe, especially among American Muslims, about kind of how bad is it going to be? What is he going to say or do? Um, and so if you go by that metric... It you know no he didn't he didn't cause an international incident so this time <laughs> you know, yeah is that a ringing victory I don't know um, for definitely for many American Muslims who are watching this very closely it was more about what he didn't say than what he did um, and what he missed was an opportunity to talk about um, Islam in his own country and the contributions of 
you know, some four million Muslim Americans and instead um, allowed, you know, this notion of Islam as this foreign religion. It's practiced by foreigners who do sword dancing and don't let women drive. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, that could be seen by some as an oversight. But when you look at who wrote the speech, which is Stephen Miller, who, you know, basically has made his career um, as an anti-Muslim activist, it seems more like a calculated omission to a lot of people. Stephen Miller, who was a top aide to Jeff Sessions, has been very anti-immigration. That was his whole career on the Hill, as you said, was talking a lot about this. I mean, I think everyone went into it expecting the Donald Trump on the campaign trail and the rhetoric he used on the campaign trail. And then it turns out that Donald Trump, when he he talks to whoever is in front of him, people were really, really looking for something that just didn't end up end up happening. Well, sure. I mean, the tone was definitely more subdued. Mm-hmm. Um, he was it wasn't as sort of fire and brimstone kind of um, attacks on Islam. But, you know, people's memories are longer than a half hour speech. And they remember his attacks on a Muslim gold star family. They remember uh, the Muslim ban, both as rhetoric and, and attempts as policy. Um, him saying Islam hates us, him saying that, you know, Muslim Americans celebrated 9-11. So I don't think that anyone, you know, from the American Muslim side would think him absolved of sort of these ideas or that this is a new and different Donald Trump we're seeing. Um, Like you said, it's just somebody who is prides himself on being a showman and who's able to adapt his message to audience. And I think when we talk about audience, we also have to remember this was not a message to Muslims themselves Mm -hmm. of the region. This was to a room of um, primarily unelected leaders. Um, And he tells them, drive out extremism, drive them out. A better future is only possible if your nations drive out the terrorists and drive out the extremists. Drive them out. You know, without any sort of prescription and without any real acknowledgement or any acknowledgement, actually, that some of their policies under autocratic regimes are exactly, you know, lead to the factors that drive extremism. Right. He, he, he went to Saudi Arabia and then he went to Israel now and then he went to visit with the Pope. So it was Catholicism or Christianity, Judaism, and was there any, what was your kind of takeaway from how that, the trip was set up? Well, I mean, I suppose it was um, reassuring to some people to hear him at least mention Islam or to include Islam in as one of the great world religions, which he did say, and to, you know, include it as the first stop on this Mm -hmm. trip of his but, you know, you look at these series of bizarre scenes that came out of pretty much every leg of the trip. And, you know, Toby Keith concerts and sword Toby dancing. Toby Keith concert this, was really you know, something. Basically a tweet in the Holocaust Memorial. <laughs> I mean, you know, just sort of, you know, really things that raised eyebrows. I mean, even how he started calling King Solomon King Solomon. I mean, it was just this, like, bizarre things. This is someone who doesn't seem super comfortable in these kind of, 
you know, religious settings. Um, so we'll see. I mean, that's that's just, you know, what analysts have told me in, in watching it. I guess we'll see. But really what struck me about um, about Trump's speech in, in in Saudi Arabia is is just like how subdued and kind of like when he's at his best, obviously, he he seem, he's either sort of. Uh, you know, riffing for the crowd and doing the applause lines. This, I mean, this seemed like he was in, in, not kill him with kindness or anything, but like kill him with, you know, boringness with nothing, with nothing, <laughs> with nothing to actually have to, you know, report or, or, or be salacious, just that it'll kind of fly under the radar. Well, I talked to a lot of observers who found that that sort of monotone delivery was pretty chilling when you look at the deeper message of the words, which is basically stepping away from a human rights watchdog role for the United States, which, you know, arguably was already, you know, never that strong. Um, And he basically, you know, adopts the language of the Houthis as terrorists, rebel group as terrorists. Um, And so some of those underlying messages, hands off, do as you please with your protesters and your women and um, your activists. And uh, that that kind of chilling message was at odds for a lot of people with that kind of subdued, just here to have a talk delivery. There was a photo that merged from this trip <laughs> of Trump and Saudi leaders placing their hands upon an orb. <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad we're going to talk about the orb. Ah, the orb. Thank you. And <laughs> thank you. What is the orb? Could we? Oh, <laughs> wouldn't we all like to know? What it's... power does the orb give us? Yeah. What power? What did the orb tell? We Donald need the Trump? orb. Yeah, it's uh, the orb. Practically, is just it was a glowing globe that <laughs> that just a glowing globe. It was just that a glowing at globe. The, at the center, uh, this new um, Saudi counter extremism center, and so uh, in someone's idea, it would be a great photo op for the king of Saudi Arabia, Donald Trump, and the Egyptian president to all place their hands on the orb. And, of course, this went viral immediately. Um, I think the Church of Satan had to weigh in and distance itself what? from it. Um, no, is that real? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they said, Yeah, they said, oh, just to be clear, this is not a satanic ritual. Oh, my God. Um, you had people saying, Hail Hydra. I mean, it was, you know, all the all the great memes that were, oh, that yes. were out there about that. And um, Hell, yeah. I mean, I guess, if anything, that part that we're talking about, the spectacle, you know, the sword dance and the coffee ritual and all that, that that seems, you know, to, to be the part that suits Trump best. I'd be much more interested in seeing what the nitty gritty behind mm. the scenes negotiations were on, you know, how how much is the U.S. going to look away on Yemen in exchange for the $110 billion arms deal. Right. All right, Hannah, thanks so much for for joining us. Thank you. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer and Eleanor Kagan. The show is edited by Catherine Miller. Production support comes from Agaranesha Chagre and Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Pill. You can find us on Twitter at Kate Nocera and at C. Warzel. And if you like the show, please, please, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. Tell a friend, one friend, your mom, anyone about the show. 